Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mindful Metal Jacket. Good morning, good afternoon, good night. Ooh, I went right into... What's that movie? Truman Show. Not a big fan. Loved it when I first saw it. And it started to make less and less sense. I'm not sure how great it really is, but maybe it is great. Maybe I should give it another chance. I don't know. Anyways, good to be here, folks. How you doing in the back? Uh, hope you're doing well. Hope you had a good, healthy, safe week since last time I saw you. I've been having a nice time. I was out in Seattle and really living in the moment, hanging with my best friend and his wife, who's a dear friend, and his children, who I consider my niece and nephew, and we played and had a wonderful time and Oh, it was just the best, and I was away from my phone a lot. I downloaded this app called Moment. I highly recommend it. It uh, keeps tracks of how many times you pick up your phone a day and how much time you spend on there, and then it also keeps track of, uh, it's called In the Moment, and that's periods of 30 minutes or longer that you're not picking up your phone or looking at your phone. And um, it's nice, and you try to set your high score. Uh, I've been down to uh, under two hours the last two days. The first two days I've been using it. Uh, I went a little haywire with my phone last week because of the election stuff. And I become obsessed with the news and what's going on. And I can get wrapped up in that stuff. And it takes me to an unhealthy place mentally and probably physically too. And I'm reading this book that I think I've mentioned a couple times called How to Break Up with Your Phone with an author named by uh, the name of Catherine Price, who I'm trying to get on the show, actually. And um, she points out that the average person spends four hours a day on their phone. And if you spend four hours a day on your phone, that works out to being about 52 days a year that you're looking at your phone. Um, it seems like a lot. Also, if you sleep for seven hours a day, let's say, and then you're on your phone for four hours, that's 11 hours out of every day that you're sleeping, which is necessary. We're looking at your phone. So I've been under two hours the last couple of days, but on Sunday I picked up my phone 168 times. Now, to be fair, I gathered some friends. I had a little Central Park hang, which I do think is essential for mental health and for giving up your phone is to get around people. And so I've been picking up the mandolin again and reading more. I'm reading some Jack Kerouac. I've been on a real Kerouac kick. Who needs a house out in Hackensack? If you read Jack Carroll, no, that didn't work. Um, so put your phone down for God's sakes. Get away from social media. I genuinely think it's destroying our society and us as individuals. And um, I don't know, maybe I talk about this too much, but I'll have Catherine Price on hopefully and we'll talk all about it. But anyways, I hope you're doing well and getting the amount of news that you need and um, spending a lot of time with friends and family. That's what started all this. I was in Seattle with friends and family, and uh, it was just the best. And so I'm going to try to do more of that, and I hope you do too. Hope you're doing well. I hope you're, uh... yeah, I hope you're well. I won't dive too much into the other stuff, but I feel good. I'll say that I'm hopeful and I'm grateful and I'm glad you're listening. I appreciate you listening. Uh, today's a fun episode. I don't know if you're 
a sober person or thinking about becoming a sober person, but uh, this episode may speak to you. There's a lot of um, sobriety, alcoholism talk on this one. Uh, but even if you're neither of those things, even if you're a moderate drinker or you drink a little bit, uh, I think you'll find a lot of interesting stuff in this episode. My guest is Sam Morris, not to be confused with Sam Marill. And uh, Sam's a guy I met for the show. He's uh, had listened to the show and he reached out and uh, he's trying real hard to help people. He's a really interesting guy, uh, former uh, alcoholic, drug addict. You're going to hear all about his story and what he's doing now. And um, he's he's a really cool guy, um, great guy. I mean, I only know him from this one-hour conversation, some emails exchanged, but um, we were supposed to meet up and talk earlier, uh, not meet up, but Zoom talk earlier. And then uh, we had some, I had some time zone issues and I was in Seattle kind of, that's the problem with being away from your phone and present is you miss out on a lot of emails and texts and times and everything. But, you know, it's a fair exchange, I guess. But anyways, we finally uh, synced up um, last week and uh, had a great conversation. I enjoyed the hell out of it. You'll see, you'll hear. Um, Sam basically tells his whole story and uh, it's fascinating and very similar to mine in a lot of ways, different in some ways, but uh, it's pretty harrowing, but um, I think it'll inspire you because um, he got out of some serious darkness and is now in the light and bringing some light to some other people and uh, including you, hopefully. And so uh, I think you'll enjoy it. I enjoyed it very much. It flew by sometimes these um, conversations. They're never hard or a problem, but there's sometimes where you're like, shit, we're only at 22. I don't know what even to say. Um, this is not my, I'm, interviewing is not my skill or whatever you say. It's not my first whatever, farts. Um, obviously, I can't even get that sentence out. So anyways, I hope that you're doing well. I hope that you'll make an effort to be away from your phone and social media more. I'm, I'm bad this morning. I got into some Twitter things, but uh, trying to avoid that. Anyways, I feel good. Um, I have some shows coming up. Well, not soon, but January 8th through the 10th, I'm at Helium in Philadelphia. I hope we'll see what happens. We're getting our second wave and all that stuff. So, um, you know, take precautions, everybody. It would help if we were all trying to do stuff, but um, we'll see what happens with that. But as of now, I'm in Philly then and um, Foxborough, Massachusetts on the 27th of November. We'll see again with that one. We might be uh, heading into some shit. Who knows? But hopefully, uh, we're already in it, actually, I guess. But anyways, I'm going off the rails again. Let's get to our fun quotes. Hmm? This one is from uh, Sharon Salzberg, who's a past guest. She has a book called Real Change that I love. And she leads some loving kindness meditations. That's what we all need, right? If we had more loving kindness for ourselves, we might not be looking at our phones so much. So here's something she said you can say to yourself. Try it now. May I be safe. May I be happy. May I be healthy. May I live with ease. Hmm? Maybe hit pause. Say those things to yourself. And then maybe masturbate. What's more loving than masturbation? All right. 
that got silly. I'm a silly guy. Enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Sam Morris. Thank you for listening. All right, we're live. Sam, good to meet you. Thanks for having me, or thanks for being on, <laughs> whatever you say. Yeah, I think that's my line. Thanks for yeah. having me. Sorry. Yeah, of course, man. I'm, ex- I'm excited to uh, chat. We had a couple... I thought it was going to happen earlier and uh, I kind of fucked up and uh, I completely forgot. I've gotten wrapped up and I was just telling you off air. I was out in Seattle with my best friend and his kids and um, I was in my own world. He's got like a seven-year-old and a four-year-old and I was Mm -hmm. playing with them and I'm trying to find this balance of, you know, being away from the phone and, and trying to be present and then also not just missing 100% of my emails and texts. It's hard to do. That is a hard balance. Yes, I know. I, uh, I, I walk that line with um, my notifications. You know, like I'm one of those guys that the, the red dot on the phone was made for me. Like I'm one of those guys that can't stand to see the red dot on the phone. So if I see one, I have to uh, address it. And so the more of them, I, I find that balance of like I need the, the important ones on. But if I have too many on, then I just get lost in whatever. I'm the same exact way. It's funny. I, I, I read about you and I'm like, I feel like uh, our stories are so similar in so many ways. Uh, I'm excited to talk about all of it, but I'm the same way. I'm reading this book. I keep talking about it uh, on the podcast called um, How to Break Up with Your Phone by mm. a woman named Catherine Price, who I'm trying to get on the podcast. Um, but she has all these tips. And one of the things she talks about that I'm got, I got to try to do is you can set up your phone to respond automatically which I've seen people do where you get like a text saying, Hey, I'm driving right now. Like an auto reply. And I got to start doing it of just an auto reply that says, Hey, I'm whatever it's uh, I'm driving or uh, I'm not looking at my phone for a while because like you, I have that thing, just an, uh, the little red dot, you have a text or an email. It makes me fucking nuts. I can feel it in my head. It's OCD, (laughs) whatever it is. I know. Yeah, definitely OCD. I see, I see a dot in my phone. I'm like, I can't have that. I I, uh, I did what I really dialed mine in doing uh, the Flow Research Collective. It's these guys out of uh, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Rian Doris and um, Stephen Kotler, who wrote um, Becoming Superman, I think is the name of his book, okay. but all about achieving flow state. And he just said, you know, the enemy of flow is distraction. And right. So it's just so, so there for us. Yeah, exactly. And like I said, like I'm, I go to, Seattle and I'm like, I'm gonna be present with the kids and my buddy. And then you put everything away. And then five hours later, you look and you're like, fuck, I got six emails and one's important. And my agent called and my, my buddy texted <laughs> and I was supposed to walk with this guy. And, yeah. and, and then I feel all the anxiety I avoided in those five hours hits me tenfold. <laughs> uh, because right. I'm like, shit, and I, I scramble. And then I have to have a moment. That's where I'm trying to have that moment of mindfulness to be like, okay, they're just texts. They're people. And I, I don't know if you relate to this or have this, but my feeling, the reason I feel like I have to respond to texts and emails is that I'm like, these people hate me now. This I haven't responded. So they think I'm a piece of shit. They hate me. And that's that's what I'm feeling. Yeah, I get that too. Like, oh my God, this person, like they think that I'm ignoring them or they think that, um, yeah, like you hate them. Like they, they must be thinking like I did something wrong. And, uh, what, you know, honestly, like the read receipt on text messages, 
is one of those things where it, it almost takes it off the table because like, if you don't open it and read it, it's like, well, I haven't read it yet. So the person knows that I got delivered, but I haven't read it yet. Yeah. I, I do that with, um, with like social media messages, Facebook messages, yeah. Instagram and stuff. I'll just, I'll never open it just so it never says I saw it. Yeah. And, and well, it's a good way to manage expectation around that too. Cause people expect like the instant response. And when you don't respond, they're like, wait, you saw my message and you read it. I guess you have time. Yeah. So I'm going to, I got to start doing this auto reply shit. And I got, I, how are you on your phone? Are you addicted to your phone? Are you okay? Where are you at with social media and shit? Um, so I have, uh, I've, I've, been, I've over time gotten a lot better at it. I've implemented some rules around social media where I do throughout the day. I do um, Instagram and LinkedIn is where I do most of my work. So I'll go on to post if it's before um, 4 PM, I'll go on just to post and then just let it be what it's going to be. And then after 4 PM, I kind of let myself respond or get kind of dive in a little bit to like seeing what's going on and like, interacting with other people and then after 6 p.m is when i kind of let it let let it all go and i just get like I, I, whatever happens happens but you know I, I i'm definitely hyper aware of my tendency to go down that rabbit hole with it and i've actually gotten off facebook because of it um I, I i don't have the app facebook app on my phone i don't have i'm not logged into facebook anywhere so it creates like another level of friction between me and facebook so i have i have to log in i have to put my password in and all that so I have some things in place that save me from myself as Austin Powers would say. Right. right. Old number. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I got to start doing some of that shit. I, I don't have the Facebook app, but I check it on internet Explorer or whatever it is. And I, yeah. I deleted the Twitter app, but occasionally I'll go on there and um, Instagram. I'm on quite a bit or too much probably, but yeah, I find it's just, you know, you just like, you really have to find your groove with it. And like, I, you know, I know that like, and one of the thing, the, the Pomodoro timer, do you ever use those? No. What's that? So there's, there's one app I love. It's called Tick Tick, Tick Tick. It's like a to-do list app, but it has a timer built in. You can set it for like, I have like a 45 minute block. I have a 60 minute block and a 90 minute block, depending on what I want to do. And it basically locks your phone. Um, I mean, you got, you can log in obviously, but it like, it, instead of when you pick up your phone, instead of having like notifications up there, it'll just have the timer. So it kind of takes it out of sight, out of mind kind of thing. And you, and you just something about it, like the mental, the mental flip that gets switched, switch that gets flipped um, is it, it keeps you from like logging into the phone. So I use the, the Pomodoro timer quite a bit. I think they have an app too, like a strictly Pomodoro app. Oh, maybe I'll check that out. Egg, that egg timer, cool. I think is another one that, they, that you can use, but yeah, it really actually helps. It helps quite a bit. The, in this book, the how to break up with your phone. Catherine Price talks about an app called Moment. I don't know if hmm. you know that one. Is that the one where you build trees or you build I th forests? I, I don't think so. I haven't used it yet, but for, it sounds like what it is is you. Um, what it it puts a thing on all your apps that when you press a social media app and you touch it to open it, it takes 15 seconds to open. <laughs> it just won't open for 15 uh, seconds. So you kind of have to sit there. Yeah. And the hope about, is that think about what you did. <laughs> yeah. And then that time you're like, ah, fuck this. And uh, that's, that sounds pretty good to me. I haven't tried it yet. Um, sounds awful, yeah, um, <laughs> but also extremely useful. Yeah. It sounds helpful, you know, but I'm the kind of guy that there's so many things that I get advice or um, 
some kind of help or, or wisdom. And I'm like, that sounds good. I'll come back around to that in about three years or six months. Yeah. You know, whatever. <laughs> right. uh, like, yeah. Those screenshots in your phone that are like, when did I, what, why did I screenshot that? Yeah, ex- exactly. Oh, I'm a huge screenshot guy. So let's, let's go back a little bit here. Yeah. And uh, we, I went hard into all that stuff and just jumped right in there, but tell, tell me a little bit, about yourself you're a you're a sober guy much yeah. like myself yeah nice yeah how Hell long yeah. how long you have sober um it'll be eight years end of december hopefully oh. we'll see how this week goes but uh, <laughs> yeah i'm actually i'll be eight years in about uh 17 days again like we'll see how this week goes but oh if wow they, if things go according to plan that's how it's gonna go oh wow so our sobriety is is really close like we're like yeah, a few weeks like, apart from each other yeah november 21st is mine 2012 Oh, wow. Okay. I'm December 28th, uh, oh, nice. 2012. So you, so you made also. it through Thanksgiving and Christmas. Yes. It, <laughs> I, I was just after Christmas. It was Christmas night that I was really like, ah, right. Yeah. Um, which I, I always talk about, you know, Christmas night for me, I got 100% alcohol gifts. All of my Christmas gifts were booze. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, I'm that, I'm the booze guy. Yeah. And um, I mean, there was a whole lot of other things and but just that thing, hanging with family, making Joe, and everyone was like, what are you, what's wrong with you? And you're like, ah, I don't know. And then I went a few more days, tacked on a few more days for fun. But yeah, my plan, my plan was, so I, uh, I actually was a sober for about 11 and a half months before uh, September, September 20th of 2012. I fell off the wagon after 11 and a half months because I had a friend in town from high school and he offered me a beer at a football game. And I was like, yeah, sure. I've been sober about a year, probably fixed by now. <laughs> and so uh, two months of just complete shit show. I mean, I was in the hospital or the, the, I was in jail for seven nights for a DUI. Had my dog in the car when I got the DUI. Um, almost ran somebody off the road. I was blacked out. It was, t- it was seven in the morning, uh, middle of North Carolina. Hospital a few times, um, job ended, house, complete wreck. Drug dealer broke into my house, stole my TV. This is all within two months. And then uh, my plan was, is like, okay, I'll hold on. To, you know, it was about to be Thanksgiving, November 21st. I think Thanksgiving was like, this was like, a, must have been a Saturday or Sunday. Thanksgiving was that week. I was going to hang on through the holidays and then, you know, get, get the ship righted on Jan- after January. And it just got to the point I was, uh, it was 4 a.m. on the 21st of November, 2012. And I was sitting there at my kitchen table. You know, alone, everybody had just left. like every when I say everybody, I mean like these strangers and my drug dealer had just left, and I was sitting there looking at a pile of cocaine and a bunch of bottles of rum, and just was like, yeah, I can't, can't do it anymore. This is it. Wow. And so I called nine one one. It was like, you need to take me in. Like the thoughts I'm having are not good thoughts, and uh, I need to be, you know, locked up. Not not like jail, but like I need to go to like the psych ward. So I went to the psych ward and then uh, seven days there, right to a rehab in Michigan, another rehab in Utah, sober living in Utah. And then I ended up in San Francisco about nine months later. And uh, San Francisco, we can get into the whole backstory, but I'll, just, I'll kind of work in reverse here. Um, San Francisco was the first city I had lived in as an adult, you know, post-college where I didn't have any drinking memories. I didn't have like my other cities, like I lived in Miami for a bunch of years and Charlotte, North Carolina, and I had these uh, Delray Beach and I had every place I would go would have like this attachment of like, I got fucked up in that bar. I did cocaine in that bathroom, like, uh, you know, whatever, butt hookers there. Like it's all these bad memories in San Francisco. I, cause my, my normal MO is like, I moved to a new city. 
you know, pulled a bunch of geographics and, and addiction. So I moved to a new city and like, well, how do you meet people? You go to bars. Right. And so, you know, for an active alcoholic, that's a real bad recipe. So, you know, in San Francisco, I, instead of doing that, I went to, you know, I went to AA meetings and I went to a, like the gym and I went to like these healthy things that people were doing, you know, hikes and, and meetups and stuff like that to meet sober people. And so what happened is that my life got extremely good, extremely quickly. Right. And, you know, I found a career that I love, which is the kind of evolved into what I do now, but it started with personal training. And so the way I, my introduction to personal training is because I was a tennis player my whole life. So when I was really, really, really super young, um, I had a really, really bad allergies, like a, just a list of food allergies. So everything from like strawberries, pork, eggs, to peanuts, legumes, beans, apples, almonds, peaches, walnuts, like you name Jesus. it, coconuts. Yeah. So I always like to say I was allergic to basically everything except water and air except that I had asthma. So I was kind of, kind of allergic to air too. <laughs> so, Jesus. so I, like, I, so I had these, like this, this sickness as kid, as a kid. And so, you know, I, I, it was two things that happened. One is I felt extremely separate and different from my peers. And, you know, they would, kids would make fun of me for my breathing or that I couldn't eat a peanut. They would wave a peanut in front of my face. And so, I mean, that was, traumatic but at the same time what was more traumatic was just like the strict the straight fear of the world you know i if, if my parents weren't around and i was at a a party and growing up in vermont you know it's a lot of hay rides and barns and cows and horses with all that fur and dander flying around so like there's a risk of an asthma attack pretty much every breath i would take so i had this fear that i was either going to eat a peanut or have an asthma attack whenever i wasn't around my parents and so that fear in in retrospect i can look back and say that fear caused a lot of social anxiety in me so instead of like gravitating towards team sports like baseball and soccer and i did play those but i always felt really out of place and you know there's like with soccer for example you're always running and so that meant like i was always at risk for an asthma attack basketball the same way and so i i, I picked up a tennis racket when i was about six or seven years old and you know i, I took to it like like a duck to water, whatever, you know, whatever that saying is like, it was just natural to me and it felt good. And it was an individual sport. And yeah, I, I, Andre Agassi was just starting to come on the scene at that point. And so I was like, this is awesome. Like, this is what I want to do. And so I had passion. I had love, I had talent. I had this drive to be a professional tennis player. So all through high school, my excuse, my excuse went from like, you know, I don't feel well, I can't go to these parties. Um, to like i'm playing tennis on the weekend so i you know i'm, I'm pretty much like putting in like a, a built-in defense for not going to parties because i felt so anxious socially anxious and so um through high school it was always tennis was number one and i would go to a few parties here and there a really small town so everyone knew each other but um this lasted all through college and so um you know tennis was like the number one thing and it, it, it took priority over drinking. It took priority over partying. It took priority over girls. It took priority over all the things that I would, you know, quote unquote, what normal teenagers would do. And so um, after college, when tennis fell away, you know, that's when the alcoholism kind of crept in. You know, I like I, I, I didn't I had that void in my life of, you know, my identity was was gone. Basically, I, you know, my identity was a tennis player and like that was my thing and I was committed like I didn't really focus on academics, you know, I, I did four years of college, I never got a diploma but I played on the tennis team for four years and so, you know, my thing was I'm not here to for school I'm here to, you know, be a professional tennis player like that's what I'm going to do after college. 
that didn't happen after a few injuries, but um, you know, that's when at, you know, 23, 22, 23, when I graduated college, that's when the drinking really drinking and partying really picked up. And so for 15 years, I was basically a, a, you know, a mess. Right now. So did you not start drinking at all? Did, did when did you have your first drink? Was that late? So, yeah, my, my first, I was like, I was a late bloomer in that one. Um, my first, my first real time I got drunk was, um, I think I was like 16. Um, no, that's wrong. There was one time I got drunk at my parents' house. My parents went out, went out for the night. My buddy stayed over at my house and we did a few shots of whiskey or something like that. And we kind of laughed and run around the house and all that. The real, the first time I got, I went out to a party and got really drunk. I was like 17, I think. And, you know, it, it was actually the first time that I had a consequence from it as well. Cause the next day I was supposed to play in the finals of a tennis tournament and I got, I was way too hungover. I just couldn't play. I told my parents, I was like, I can't, I can't play in this tournament. I'm sorry. Like I'm nauseous and throwing up and sweating and just headache and all this thing, all the things. Right. So those were the two times before college that I got drunk. Um, never, I was never really, uh, I even smoke, smoking weed. I, I started, I think my first time I smoked weed was summer after my senior year of high school. Um, never smoked weed. Never, I've never still to this day, never had a cigarette in my life. Um, so the alcohol, all that stuff came in much later in life. And, um, you know, through college, I would get drunk here and there, but it was never like, you know, I, I'll, again, tennis was always way more important to me. And I, and I somehow intuitively knew that if I was going to drink tennis would suffer and I didn't want that to happen. So go ahead. No, interesting. I, I feel very similarly where I didn't, I was late. I didn't drink till I was 18, almost 19. I, I never drank at all in high school. Mm-hmm. Same thing, never smoked a cigarette. And I was a runner in high school. I played baseball, but then I was a runner and, and same thing. And I was like, I'm running, I'm, I'm doing, I'm an athlete. I'm all these things. And same exact day. One high school, high school ended. And then it was just kind of like I wasn't going to college because I wanted to be a comedian, and which I, I was doing. Yeah. And it was the same thing of like, all right, maybe I'll try drinking. And I had nothing to prevent me from. There was no thing that was like, I better not drink because I have to run tomorrow. I have school tomorrow. Yeah. Once you take away any kind of responsibility, then it's it's off to the races, particularly uh, for me and, and show. But everyone else was drinking, too. It's yeah. easy to find people that were drinking. Yeah, so I'm sure that's one of those industries. What, so when you drank the couple times in, in college, was, was there, did you feel this change of like, oh my God, I see things clearly, but I, I got to play tennis. I mean, did you have any inkling of? <clears throat> so I recognize that, you know, I, I always, I always would dread the social situations. That was something from, I mean, as far as long back as I can remember, it's just like not looking forward to being around people and a group of people feeling very awkward, you know, like that whole, like the microscope's on me, the light's on me. And, you know, we all know now that it's not, it's just like, that's the way we feel with anxiety. Right. And so um, I recognized that when I did drink, I was one of the cool kids. Like I was, you know, talking to girls and telling jokes and laughing and dancing and doing all the things like all that worry went away. That was the thing I noticed. So I said, I, I didn't, I didn't recognize that as any, any sort of problem at the time. I just recognized it as, all right, if I'm going to be out doing social things, there's going to have to be alcohol involved. Right. Yeah. I, I felt the same way. I, it's weird because there was a time in my life where I did feel comfortable socially. If I had my friend, it, it took a lot for me to make, I was good at making friends. And then once I felt close to those people, I felt very comfortable with those people, but I would always say, who's, yeah. who's this guy when someone else, which I still have, I still struggle <laughs> with that. 
you know, I'm like, we already have our group. Who's this asshole? And my inclination is to <laughs> dislike and fear everybody new. That's that's the natural thing I have. But drinking made that less so. I go, get over here, you son of a bitch. Woo! I was that guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you know, so it became it, it definitely helped socially. And I had the same thing. I became I can only socialize when I'm drinking. And in my mind, I'm like, I'm fun when I'm drinking. That's when I'm yeah. really fun and cool. For a while, yeah, there was like, yeah, one of the, yeah, the, the, one of the towards the end of my drinking, one of the big things I would always because I, you know, as you as the tail end of my drinking, it was like periods of sobriety and then a relapse, and it was a shit show for two months or three months or whatever. And so, like my my close friends, my girlfriends would always be like, you know, like I really like sober Sam, and I, my my immediate thought was like, well, that's cool, but I don't. <laughs> Right. You know, like it was like, I, I'm completely uncomfortable when I'm sober. Like, yeah, that's not going to work. So, you know, I, I just fought to find that happy medium of like not the alcoholic version where, you know, going missing for four days and staying up for a week at a time. Like not that guy, but like the guy that can find that balance of like, okay, I don't, I can handle myself and I'm, I feel good in these situations, but not out of control. Right. And, you know, as an alcoholic, that's impossible. So when, you had anxiety you talked about your yeah. whole life, even as a, as a kid. And I, f I feel the same way, exactly anxiety, horrible anxiety, and eventually panic. Did, did panic attacks become part of your story? Um, not until, <clears throat> um, actually not till I, not till I really got sober. Um, and mm -hmm. you know, it was like the, like when something really bad would happen in sobriety, you know, I would go, I would go into like the heart racing and it was, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, <clears throat> excuse me. I wouldn't say I ever had full on panic attacks, but I know what they look like. And I've, I've seen them happen before. And I, I, as close as I can get to them, that, that feeling of just like the world is caving in, like the reality is way too much. You know, like if you're like, they would strike me a lot when I was going through heartbreak is one of the big ones for me. And like, you know, you go to sleep at night and get a, get like an hour or two of sleep and you wake up and for that split second, you're, you, you kind of forget the reality and then it all comes rushing back and you're just like panic mode. Right. You know, like this reality is awful. You know, I'm, I'm basically on death's door right now because my heart is so broken. Right. That, right. that was kind of my experience with extreme anxiety. Yeah. So how long, once you start drinking, you're, you're done with tennis. Now you, you pick up the drinking and how long before it starts to feel out of control? What did you feel? It was like, Jesus, this is going to be a problem at some point. Or was people telling you or did it go OK for a little while? Um, both. <laughs> so there, there was so the first two times that I mentioned in high school when I got drunk, um, they somehow gave me some sort of healthy respect for what's possible on alcohol. Um, just like, you know, like I always say, um, a lot of alcoholics will say like, I never got hung over. And I experienced that. Like I didn't get the severe hangovers really. Like I was, you know, if it was a real, real ag aggressive party, I would, but I, the, what was more um, prevalent for me was the emotional hangover the, like the, it doesn't sit right with my soul. Like something about that didn't feel right. Like, and every time I got drunk, you know, like the first couple times there in high school, I would just, it, it was, I had that emotion, that physical hangover that one time, the next time was more like mm, something about that just doesn't feel right. Like if that's the way it's going to go, I'm not sure I'm interested in all that. Like, you know, I noticed the kind of, I guess I, I didn't really resonate with the out of control feeling of it, you know? And so 
for a while, I would always keep that in the back of my mind. And I would always say like, well, the possibility here is that I will get really out of control. And so there were, there were probably three times in college. I mean, out of, and I drank like, like what I, a quote unquote normal college student would do. Like maybe Friday and Saturday nights, maybe most, most weekends. But if there was a tennis tournament on Saturday, I, I wouldn't drink Friday and I would save it for Saturday. You know, I had that governor on it, but um, it was more so the, um, just like a, a, some sort of awareness that like this could get out of hand. And so I would, I would always have that, that built in kind of like reins on it. And so, but as time went on, so there was a couple of times in college, I remember thinking to myself, like, God, I, I, I was really out of control more so than everybody else around me. And so then um, after college, it, I did control it to the point where like on the weekends I would rage and then, but I would always, I would always save it for, you know, maybe Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, pull it together on Sunday, make it to work on Monday. And, you know, it was, and to, it's not an excuse, but like everyone around me was doing the same thing. Right. And so um, from age 23, I, you know, the real hardcore like slide down the cliff happened, started at age 23 and ended at age 38. And so from 23 to 33 or 23 to 30 was like the steady decline of like, you know, that the, the, the progression of alcoholism is what it's mostly fun. It's some fun, some bad, mostly bad with a little bit of fun, all bad. Right. You know, 23 to 30 was like that mostly fun with a few bad times in there. And then right. 30 to 33 was like, definitely some bad times in there, but also some good times. And then 33 to 38 was just basically 95% terrible. Yeah. That that's the amazing thing to me about drinking. One of the fascinating things about drinking is you sort of romanticize and then you're like, Oh man, that was so much fun. And, and then you look back and then you're like, actually that wasn't fun. That was horrible. (laughs) I wanted to kill myself that night. That night I just broke a bunch of shit. And you're kind of when you look back years later, you're kind of like, was that fun at at all? I mean, certainly there was fun. I mean, like exactly the way you described it early on, you're discovering it. And and for me, like I was meeting all these cool people and going, oh, my God, I'm I'm living the dream. I'm I'm doing it. And and like you said, there was that that normal college drink. There was always people around that were drinking like you. I did the same thing again with comedy. I was able to find people that drank like me and also were older than me and had wives or even kids and so it made it well this my drinking's out of control and insane but this guy's doing the same thing and he has a wife so right. I'm fine so you're, yeah uh, you're on the right path <laughs> yeah so there was there was a lot of that but it's it's always interesting to me when um you i mean like you said you had tennis so you drank a few times but it wasn't every night and it wasn't until a couple of years later that it started to go really yeah i'd haywire. say like you know when i was probably about like 27, 26, 27 was when, you know, I was known as the party guy. I started to be known as like, and it, it, it was like, it was either Sam's going to be okay and, and a good time tonight, or he's going to be completely incoherent and you can't talk to him. Right. And so I was kind of, I had, I was developing that reputation, which to me, honestly, like I, when the tennis identity and the tennis went away, I started to install a new identity, which was a rock star. You know, like I wanted to be on a bus, tour bus with Kid Rock, you know, slamming bush lights. Like that was my right. life goal at the time, you know, I wanted to be that. And so like it, it just naturally, of course, like I wanted to be that. And so I became that in my group of friends, you know, to the detriment of a lot of nights. 
Right. Now, were you a musician? No. Mm-mm. No. Just... I just wanted I just wanted to live the rock star life. <laughs> yeah, see, I, I felt that way and I, I romanticized. There's so many things and, and pieces of art that romanticize drinking. I would listen to like Tom Waits and feel like this. I'm at the end of a bar as this old grizzled or, you know, these old Irish poets that I never read. But I was like, they're drunks, you know, and. Hemingway or whatever, and then yeah. you know all, all these yeah, Bill like, Hicks or whoever. Yeah, Hemingway. Yeah. Yeah. So you kind of romanticize yeah. this idea. Yeah. Of, no, there's, there's, it, it's sexy. Like, yeah, sexy as hell. Like the Hemingway, you know, write drunk, edit sober, that kind of thing. You know, right. That's that's romantic. You know, and like to see all the like even like Hunter S. Thompson and Bill Murray and like all those guys like that were just like they they make it look beautiful, <laughs> but in reality, like it's not really that way. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just a mess looking, but we got, I think it got a little, um, the video audio got a little fucked up there. I think we're caught up now though. Oh. I think it just, it looked like yeah. your, I could hear you great, but your uh, thing, your video is freezing, but that's all right. Nobody cares about the video, I froze um, up. Um, but I think we're good now. Um, but I, I heard, I heard everything you said, I think. And um yeah, I felt the same way. Like like we said, the kind of the romanticizing the sexiness of it. And then you realize, oh, I'm just a vandal. I, that's, I was a big vandal. That was my, or one of my many things. I would go out, I would get angry. I would start off the night. It was all extremes to me. I was the guy that's, everything's great. Life is great. You love me. I love you. Fucking woo. And yeah. then it would hit a point where I'd be like, you hate me. I hate myself. I would literally go to the bathroom, just stare in the mirror for like a half hour and just call myself a piece of shit. And then it would get ugly. As I would start vandalizing, stealing, breaking shit, smashing windows, you know, breaking the antennas off cars and mm. horrendous shit. I, I loved the parking garages, the, the, the big wooden arms. I would snap those off and, oh, yeah. and whip them and run on the <laughs> hoods of cars and stealing mailboxes, street signs just completely out of control and i it's stuff that i can't even like make amends for i have no idea where i was or anything i'm just like i i smashed somebody's fucking mailbox yeah i mean i i get it it's a jekyll and hyde thing like you just at what point does it does the the pendulum shift there from you know the happy happy guy or even like the the okay drunk to the to the angry side right and and so you ended up you mentioned drugs and coke when did that start coming in so i'm that, grateful that i never dealt in, with that yeah that came in um you know again it was sporadic for a while from probably like end of college till about till so i got married when i was 27 and when i met my wife i was 25 ex-wife when i met her i was 25 and we did a lot of partying together and, and that was like a circle where there was a lot of mdma ecstasy cocaine um that kind of stuff and so that really became part of the routine uh i would say at age like 25 26 and then at the at the bitter end it was it was the alcohol and the cocaine that were there for that were there with me right all the other stuff smoke i smoked a bunch of weed that was i had no problem turning that off because it would make me so anxious when i smoked it the the ecstasy was like a three-year phase that i went through late 20s didn't really do much of that after that did some lsd in college um, did a bunch of mushrooms after college, like at festivals or concerts, stuff like that. But it really was like, you know, it was like when I was, when I got divorced at 29 and moved down to Miami from Fort Lauderdale, um, that's when, like you talked about earlier, how you had like nothing in your life that would 
they be like, you can't do this. You know, it wasn't running anymore, baseball for you. And for me, like I went from um, tennis in college and then I had about two years where it was kind of like free for all. But I, but again, at this point, I still had control over it. And then I met my ex-wife at 25. So then I had you know, the relationship to take care of. So I kind of had that as a governor. And then at 29 was the first time in my life when I really had nothing. I had no, no like reins on my life at all. You know, it was me. I was single in Miami doing commercial real estate, making a bunch of money, having a bunch of free time. <clears throat> and so this was when, you know, it was, this is when people like would really be like, you know, like what's going on. Like we all like to do cocaine and have a good time, but you are a next level. And so I was like, that's just me. Like, I'm just a rock star. Like, don't mind me. Let me, you know, let me do what I want to do. And so that, that eventually got to the point for the next three years where it was, you know, 23 to 20 to 30 was that steady decline. And then 30 to 33 was pretty much a, just a drop off a cliff. Right. And when it got to the point where when I'm 33, I had had a girlfriend for about two years. Um, great girlfriend. Um, you know, like the, the first one that was like real heartbreak for me. Um, and she, she actually refers to the last six months of our time together as the darkest time of her life. Wow. And like, and I get it. Like, I mean, I, we haven't talked in a long time, but when I was, you know, getting, trying to get sober and make amends and get the girl back, she would tell me these things. And I'm just like, well, you know, I didn't, I see it now as like, you know, I was going off into South beach for four days at a time and not calling her and like, you know, getting like take, going out with her and ending up coming home alone. And she's somewhere in Miami by herself. And I'm like, you know, just like terrible things. And I totally get it. But um, at age 33 was when there was a big shift in the sense of like, it was my first trip to rehab. Um, I think I, I got my, it was my um, fourth DUI. Wow. But the first one I actually you know, went to jail for. Um, it was just like an overnight in the in the junk tank, but it was the first one that I was like, I really got to face the music on this one. And so I went to rehab for 28 days in the spring of 2007, and then um, I got out of rehab. Um, and I, at this point, I was like, I'm not an alcoholic. I refused to call myself an alcoholic. And I had this conversation in my head because I, you know, I did. I mentioned I did have that like that that kind of control over it for a while because I had that healthy fear. And so I, my thinking was, is like, okay, I'm just, I'm just, I just went too far down the road in the wrong direction. Like no problem. I'll get back on the track. Just drink normally. won't be a problem. And so that was my thinking for quite a while. And so you know, I went away to rehab to basically make the judge happy. And, and I was, I was tired at this point too. Like I, I had been for three years, been running pretty hard. And I was like, you know what? Timeout sounds good. I'm going to go, I'll, I'll, I'm on board with this rehab thing. I'll go. And so I stayed sober for about a week after that. And then within two weeks after that, it was right back into the old, same old behaviors. And, my, and the, this was when the girlfriend was like, listen, I love you, but I can't let you do this to me anymore. And I'm not going to watch you do this to yourself anymore. And wow. that was like, that was the first time when I, we talked about earlier about how like those panic attacks would set in and those like heightened, like extreme anxiety where like, you know, like the world is spinning at a thousand miles an hour and nothing feels good. You can't even watch TV, the memories, like all of it, just like complete and utter overwhelm. And this went on for like six months. Yeah, 100%. I mean, good for her for uh, asserting herself and setting boundaries. I Absolutely. Mean, but yeah, you mentioned I, it's always hard when uh, you get sober and then you, you want to make amends for the things you did. And then you kind of want everyone to go, don't worry about it. Yeah, <laughs> it's cool. And then they yeah. go, yeah, that was the worst time of my life. And you're like, 
fuck oh, why'd you have to say that man <laughs> you kinda, <laughs> yeah you know you, you have to be out of the like you said out of the kind of stay out of the result but um there is that thing of it, it is hard to hear it especially in sobriety to hear like the damage you actually did do to people yeah especially especially you know when your intentions aren't in the right place right you know, if, like if i'm if i'm going to apologize to this girl or make amends to this girl for the damage i had done but my only intention really is to like you just said like expect her to be like oh come back like run into my arms right and then you know my intention there is not to really apologize for what i did it's to like say like listen look at me i'm better i'm sorry for what i did but you're taking me back right and when they say no it's it's a real shot yeah and you kind of left to be like all right shit i guess i I guess I'll go I guess get I drunk really, again. <laughs> I really fucked up. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and did you try to quit on your own in those other times? Did you say, hey, let me try to get a, a few days together even? Or, or uh, did you ever get any amount of days sober, not drinking at all? Um, sporadically, yeah. Like, so I, my, my drinking thing was, my MO was binger. You know, like I would be, I could, I could literally, um, all the way through, really, I could say, I'm not going to drink for three weeks. And you know, I was white knuckling it, of course, like I wanted to drink, but if I, but if I had to prove something to somebody or my family or a girlfriend, like I could say no and actually be pretty okay. Not picking, like I could have the liquor in my cabinet or have the, the drugs in the closet and be like, okay, they're there, but you know, I, I can't, I'm not, I'm okay not doing it. And right. so the, my problem started when I would that first, first sip, that first drink, like then it's liable to be five or six days and I'm, you're not going to hear from me. You know, right. I'm maybe end up in jail, maybe end up in the hospital, who knows where hotel right. in South beach. I don't know. And so, um, as far as like, yeah. So that first trip to rehab, um, got drunk afterwards. And then when the girlfriend broke up with me, um, finally she left and said, uh, She's like, I can't do this anymore. That threw me into a tailspin of basically like three months of just blackout drunk or sleeping. There was no real awakening or wakeness of my life at all. It was just dark depression. Right. And then, so I finally was like, you know what? This pain is too much. I think that if I get sober, I can get this girl back. Cause we were still talking a little bit. And so I went to Utah to rehab in the fall of that year. And I had full intention of, you know what? I'm going to go to rehab in Utah. I'm going to come back to Miami. I'm going to run to the, I'm going to call my girlfriend and we're going to get back together and I'll be sober because I'll get the girl back. And so I got back to Miami, called her. We had lunch and she's like, no, that ship sailed. And of course my heart sinks. And cause again, I'm making these amends with the wrong intention and my heart sinks. My stomach gets upset. But at the same time, I have this thing in the back of my head that says, Oh, I don't have to be sober anymore. And so this, this preceded two years uh, from 2008 to the middle of 2010 of just like, you know, I would drink for six months and then maybe like start to go to meetings for 30 days, maybe get 60 days, maybe get two weeks. But there, there were attempts, but they were meager attempts. And there was no, I didn't have any reason or, or like any desire really to be sober. I just knew that like people, a lot of people were asking questions and, you know, financially I was struggling and career wise, I was struggling and my friends were all alienating me. So I kind of was like making these half-assed efforts to get sober. And um, that basic pattern went on for five years from 33 to, to 38. And, you know, the, and within that time, there was six trips to rehab. 
um, before the or five trips to rehab before the last one that I, wow. that, that finally did it for me. Wow. But, um, you know, it was like, and again, like in that time, there was a year of sobriety, there was eight months of sobriety. There was again, 30, 60, 90 days here and there, but yeah, it was not ever successful. Yeah. It's funny what you're capable of out of spite or to prove a point to have the ego. Um, <laughs> but I, I remember one time I went and did comedy in uh, Iraq and Kuwait and overseas for like 10 days. And I'm talking to a buddy who was an alcoholic in recovery. And I went, Hey, I, I think I'm actually good, man. I just went 10 days without drinking. Uh-huh. And uh, he was like, that's, that's, that's good. You know? And I was like, I was in Iraq and he's like, well, that's not sobriety. There's no alcohol there. Like he's not, if you go to a place where alcohol is unavailable, you're not really getting, there's no sobriety. You're just, it's just unavailable to you. Of course you can do yeah, that. No and of course yeah. you know, I, was, I was back, I was drinking again, but um, I want, I'm so fascinated by stories and I love war stories, but I feel like we only have 20 minutes left, 15 minutes left. I'm like, let's, I, I want to get to um, some solution where you are now. Cause I know you yeah. struggle with anxiety, OCD, obviously you've gotten sober. How yeah. did you do that? Take me through some of that. And cause I'm sure there's a lot of people that are interested. Yeah. In so yeah, I mean, the, the war stories, they're all fun and games, but they're all the same too. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> um, what happened was, is that moment when I was 38, uh, eight years ago, you know, I was sitting at my table and I just like, it was, it's one of those like, spiritual experiences or out-of-body experiences, whatever you want to call it, it doesn't feel like it was me that stopped it. But I just knew, I saw like, for some reason, I got that moment of clarity where all the pain that I had caused myself, other people, girlfriends, mom, dad, sisters, all of that stuff just like was right in front of my face. And I was just looking at it. And I had seen my dad a couple of days before and he, he looked like death warmed over, just like eyes sunken, looked at me and started crying like he's like every time you go back to charlotte i don't know if i'm ever going to see you again and like all this like these things were just ringing in my ears and so from that point on like i you know i'm I'm very very blessed and very lucky and and grateful that from that point on i've never had the desire to pick up a drink again i've never had like a craving i never had any close calls or anything but the thing that i did that was the most important thing was that I recognized like I had everything was stripped away from me at this point. I mean, money, girls, uh, girlfriends, dog, house, career, car, family. My sister hadn't talked to me in five years. Like I literally was at zero. And so I knew that I had to build. I knew that the, one of the keys to sobriety was two things. It was to, to build a life that I actually loved, like to put things in place in my life that actually mattered more to me than drinking did. And I knew that I had to find guys that I could talk to. I had to find like that so that core group of dudes that I could call if anything was going haywire. And you know, I call them, and it's we don't ever talk about. It's more about like like heartbreak or you know, my dad passed away in sobriety. My sister she died of alcoholism in 2018, and like I can call these guys about this stuff about life, and to have those two things in place. And I did that over the next. So I was in basic treatment for nine months and then to San Francisco where San Francisco, I started building, I started meeting these, like these really, like I knew what I had to do. I knew I had to meet sober guys. You know, I had to, I had to like meet, build this sober life around like the things that matter to me. So that's being in shape. That's, you know, doing fun stuff. That's going ski. I got back into skiing. I got back into playing tennis. And so 
all these things added up to this, this life that I had that I was actually proud of. And there's the, the one thing that was missing from my entire life before that. And it's, it's crazy to think about this and say this, but um, I, I, I just finished up my book and I'm at that part in my book where this happened. And I, the word self-love or like loving yourself, taking self-care, it never even crossed my lips until 38 years old, until right. I got sober. Like it was introduced to me. And I'm like, what, what do you mean self-love? Like, yeah, I like, I like myself when I'm drunk or I like myself like certain, like conditionally almost. But again, I never, I just never knew the concept of self-love. And so when I really started to dive into what self-love looks like, you know, that was huge because, you know, it, it when you can act from a place of self-love, a lot of questions get answered. If you, if you're thinking about, you know, re- going and having a drink or getting some drugs or doing something that even like it, it, as simple as like eating a, a something that's bad for you, if you really loved yourself, would you do that? And so I had to like implement this concept, but it was so groundbreaking to me and was so new that like my life literally and still does to this day, it feels like a new toy almost, you know, like when you're a kid and you get a toy and it's like, you can't wait to get up in the morning and play with it. Like that's how it's been for me since the, since I built this life, this sober life and like all the things that I have now, like I know directly that if I was to even entertain the idea of picking up a drink, I'm putting everything I have in jeopardy. Right. And I'm just not interested in doing that. Yeah. That's the nice thing. It's funny. You mentioned, I did that when I first, um, got so like day one of sobriety and i was like i similarly i saw it so clearly i was like this is what i need to do i i, I get it now now i see it and it's clear to me i remember i made a list and i should try to find it somewhere i kept it somewhere i made a list of like activities that i could do sober that i used to do or be into and mm-hmm. i made a list of all the people i knew that were so because i knew a lot of sober people because i had a big you know in comedy there's you know so many people but i remember yep. sitting there being like i'll go to museums I'll watch a whole hockey game. And I think tennis was one of them. I could run, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I love tennis as myself. Uh, and I'm like, I, I'll start playing softball. Maybe I'll get into video game. Like you start to go through and it's strangely like without realizing it's kind of like a, a gratitude list of things that you enjoy in life. And you go, I used to find joy out of these things before I was a drunk lunatic. Like when I was, in high school, I ran, I played baseball, I watched yeah. sports and and hung out with people. That, that was something that was beneficial for me was kind of uh, putting myself mentally back in the place I was before I drank. Like I'm like in high school, I was popular and had had some fun. I had friends. I mean, yeah. I was, you know, the most, you know, I wasn't class president, but I had a group of friends and I thought I could go back there again. So it is it is fun to kind of be like, there's a lot of things to value and and life is beautiful if you're actually living it and, and aware for it and awake for it. Yeah. And another thing that I, I had a really twisted view on when I was drunk was what the idea of freedom is. You know, when I, when I was in my act of alcoholism, like I considered being drunk freedom because it meant that I was completely resolved of all responsibility, absolved of all responsibility. It meant like, don't call me. I'm drunk. Don't ask me to do anything. I'm drunk. And in reality, like if you're like, when you're drunk, you're trapped, like you're trapped in that lane. Like all you can do is be drunk. But like, I recognized when I first got sober, like one of the first things I knew I had to conquer was that social anxiety. Cause I love going to bars to watch football games. I love going to football games. I love going to concerts. Like I love all these things, but I knew I couldn't be sober. So I had to learn 
how to like socialize sober. And one of the things that got me was like, you know, if I'm not here drunk, like I'm not tied to anything. Like I can, I'm completely, I can drive myself home if I want to. I can leave whenever I want. Like I don't have to worry about getting home before the stores close so I can get a bunch of liquor to last me through the night. Like there's so much, there was so much freedom in sobriety that I thought was free, that I thought was prison before. And it just like, it flipped the whole freedom in prison conversation for me. Yeah. That's, it's funny you say that again. I, I, I identify so much. I've told the story before on this podcast. Um, I had a long talk the day before I got sober with a comic who, who's not a sober guy, but he doesn't, he doesn't drink. And we were talking and um, I, I was making a case for why I should keep drinking and one of my things was exactly like that i was like well what happens when i'm at a party or a function and i hate everybody there it's just like they're all assholes Uh and he said you go home (laughs) and it was like this unbelievable like it's so funny to me but i'm like that literally had never occurred to me to go home i thought because it goes back to that romanticism of drinking of like i'm out all night i'm living life to the fullest i'm out till Uh sun comes up and the go home thing really was like right that like and exactly like you said it's freedom and i'm like i'll go watch a movie i'll go fucking play whatever whatever the hell who cares you can do whatever you want (laughs) yeah exactly it's sobriety for me and and, you know a lot of people listening aren't alcoholics but it's not just sobriety but it's it's living a life where you're you're present and aware and enjoying life It, it really does free up a lot of things to i could read a book that would be something instead of vandalizing yeah and then the 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 next day you have the entire next day to do whatever you want to like you can you can actually get up in the morning and have a day right that's a massive massive plus too yeah that was that was another thing with me getting sober was i i was losing days by the the hangover the physical hangover as well as the emotional hangover and, and and also the feeling like you talked about for me with sobriety is never waking up and being like who did i text or how did i get home or where is my car the the feeling of remembering everything and again if you're listening even if you never were an alcoholic you could just be grateful that like hey i have a sharp memory i mean what a what a beautiful thing to be grateful for that like i remember the things i said yesterday and i have the freedom to do some things that are fun today yeah, the, the freedom to do, the freedom of choice is the real, I think, basis for happiness in life. And whether alcoholic or not aside, like mental health aside, like if you have that in your life, if you have the freedom to make choices and to be there for your family and to, to show up for life, like that's the, that is the real basis of what anything, any, any sort of happiness looks like. Right. And, and so with OCD, because I'm an OCD sufferer myself, what, what are you doing there? How does that work so, for you um i wouldn't go so far as to say i have full-on ocd but i definitely have things that um have you know in, like that that level of control of your life when you just like feel that out of control thought process those out of control obsessive thinking patterns like the obsessive thinking is what gets me the most and it's like you know i have to like really it comes down to like I like to call it drama over or data over drama, you know, like, do, do I want to pay attention to the drama, the, the obsessive thinking, the, the repetitive behaviors, all this stuff is that's, that's kind of the drama of it. The data is like, what's true. Like, let's look at what is actually true. And this, this goes for anxiety too. Anxiety is a big, it's not something I deal with pretty, 
I mean, again, I, to say I deal with anxiety now is way overstating it, but like I, it's there all like, it's one of those things that never really goes away, but like, I know for a fact that if I can get into the facts of a situation, like this is what's actually true, that will calm down all the things in my life. My behaviors, my thoughts, my interactions, the way I show up, like all this stuff will, if I can just stay in its present moment awareness is what it is. You know, and it keeps the depression at bay. It keeps the anxiety at bay. It keeps all those things that can get, that can just spell you out of control in check. Yeah. What my mantra that I always share on here is, is uh, fear is just fear. And my thoughts are not reality. And those things uh, really help me because I can still go down that, that hole quickly. I mean, I have a dentist appointment tomorrow. I have such horrendous dental fears that I talk about all the time. And, and it's not even a big, I'm not even a root canal or anything. I go all the time, but it's, it's on my mind. It's like, it's fucking up my quality of life today, just knowing that I have to go. But again, I have to get back into the reality of like, it'll be fine. It's, I'll be there for fucking 10 minutes and yeah. uh you know it's it's not the end of the world but in my mind i'm already like you know i'm getting the crown put on it's not going to fit they're going to have to pull the tooth it's going to be great i'm going to have <laughs> you know cancer by the end of it forget it yeah. um all all just stories yeah ex- exactly it's just stories and it's future tripping and, and all that shit so so what goes on so w- what do you do now you're 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 helping people and yeah what, so what goes on? now um so i was doing coaching for a while yeah i started off personal training and then i got into some recovery coaching sobriety coaching where i would get guys you know one of the things about rehab that always tripped me up was that there's no step down out of rehab like there's no way there's no real way to recalibrate back into a life as especially as like an older adult like a 30 plus year old adult like you, you get out of rehab and you've been in rehab in a safe environment container for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, whatever it is. And you're like, you step into life and you're like, what the hell? This is, this is crazy. And so like, I would help, I would just help guys with that recalibration. And then as I was doing that, I understood that like all these guys dealt with depression and anxiety or some sort of mental illness at the base level of their inability to cope with life. So I, I kind of evolved my practice into helping guys with mental health. And now I'm into, I've moved into like doing uh, men's work. So working with like masculine feminine energies and the toxic masculinity stuff, like helping creating a space for guys to come and to be open and honest and vulnerable about what they're really dealing with. Cause you know, the numbers are just staggering about guys. I think it's like 30% of all guys at some point in their life, either have suffered, will suffer, or are going to suffer from some sort of mental illness out of that 30%, only one in four will actually even talk about it. That's a very low number of, of all the guys that are out there. And so the silent sufferers end up in, in suicide. That's the end game for them. And so my thing is like, I want to create a space where men can talk about like the, the, the feminine energy and the masculine energy and find that balance and get vulnerable about like what they're scared of, what overwhelms them and why they feel uncomfortable in their marriage, for example, or, you know, what their fears are about like, you know, like a lot of this stuff with COVID, like guys have had their identities ripped away from them because of, 25 years of being in the workforce and that, you know, whether they still have a job or not, they're not going to the office. So it's a big life change. And so um, I'm now working on in 2021, like I said, I just finished up my book that's going to publish in January, working on men's retreats, men's workshops, and and, um, just trying to get on stages and podcasts and talk about creating this. I, I want guys to know, like I'm available. There's a space out there that they can come to if they're struggling and they're, they don't have anybody to talk to. And they feel like if they do talk to anybody that they'll just, their life will be shattered. It's not true. 
and the space is out there. There's guys doing it. Wow, that sounds great and uh, extremely rewarding um, for you and for them, obviously. And uh, I love I love anything that's dedicated to service and and helping people, especially in that um, realm. So, where can people find you or find more or contact you? How does that work? Uh, so the best way to find me is on either Instagram or LinkedIn on Instagram. I'm at Sam Gibbs or not.com at Sam Gibbs Morris LinkedIn, just my name, Sam Morris. And then um, if you want to email me, you can email info. I'm sorry, connect at Sam Gibbs And we, I can shoot you over some stuff. There's a, my, my coaching, my one-on-one coaching VIP coaching is available at Samuel Gibbs Morris backslash optimize your life. You can look into my programs there. Awesome. Yeah, I'll make sure to put all this stuff in the uh, yeah, I can des- an email description. Yeah, yeah, please please do do that. Um, Sam, this has been great, man. I mean, I, I really enjoyed it. I hope you did as well. Is there anything else you want to uh, add or mention that we didn't get to? Sorry, I took you through the war stories for like no, a while it's all there. Good. <laughs> it's, all, it's all good, brother. This was great, man. I, it's such a good conversation. I mean, we do have so much in co- Our stories are just like lined up like crazy. So it was awesome, man. Thank you so much for having me on. The only thing I would say is like you know one of the things that trips up people a lot is that people are afraid to say i don't know they're afraid to be beginners because it makes them look stupid because they you know it it questions their their masculinity or their 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 kind of manhood the idea is that if you allow yourself to be a beginner there nothing but good things can happen for you just allow yourself to be a beginner in everything you do and you it's the fastest way to success it's the fastest way to achieve goals it's the fastest way to overcome any kind of mental illness or anything like that. Hell yeah. I love that. Sam, thanks so much, man. I appreciate it. And uh, I'm glad we finally connected. Sorry again about last week. And uh, this was great. Thanks so much, man. All good. All good, man. Thank you very much too. Appreciate it. Mindful Metal Jacket is hosted by comedian Joe List. Produced by Joe List. Edited by Matt Kleinschmidt. Executive producers Robert Kelly and Matt Kleinschmidt for the Laugh Button Podcasts.